July 10, 1941. World War II, Poland. German troops enter the town of Jedwabne. The German commanders gather the town leaders together and they demand that the town follow the Nazi approach to the Jewish residents in the town. The Germans suggest that they execute one Jewish family from each profession. The mayor and town leaders assure the Germans that they will exceed this expectation and they stage a mock fair. People begin to gather from peasants from the rural areas and townspeople coming together for what they assume is a fair, converging on the town, and then townsmen begin to murder their Jewish neighbors, not one from each profession, but in mass. Coached by their German occupiers to inflict the severest tortures on their dying victims. Estimates vary widely, but hundreds of Jews living peacefully in Jedvabna died that day, most of them burned alive in a barn. Reports claim that Jewish children were skewered with pitchforks and tossed onto the smoldering coals where many of their parents had died earlier as villagers stood by and watched. And historians have long asked, why? What went wrong that day? What happened in that town? People living together peacefully, and then this. It just happened. Through investigations, experts have determined that the reason was not plunder, was not German propaganda, even, that had won the hearts of the people of that town. It was not national history. It was not any perceived local problem that had taken place. They couldn't pin it on anything. They haven't to this day. They have no answer. Why did half the town of Jedvabne murder the other half? They don't know. I wonder, do you? Do you know why? How do we answer this haunting question as we think, take this page from history and look at it in all of its horror? Our answer as followers of Christ does not hinge on the circumstances of the case, which is where the historians are going. They're trying to look at the circumstances and say, why did this happen? We don't need those circumstances. We don't know what they are on that level. We have no idea why this took place. Our answer hinges rather on the truth that God has revealed about the soul of man. The Bible does not reveal answers we naturally want to believe about ourselves, but it certainly gives us answers to understand such a situation. God's Word consistently reveals two realities about human nature, truths that we must embrace. They're not easy to hear. But it's at this juncture that we re-enter the stream of the Apostle Paul's lengthy argument in Romans chapter 3. We've considered it now for two weeks, beginning in chapter 2 and following as he speaks to the Jewish audience. In Romans 3, he establishes these two fundamental truths about man's natural condition and standing before God. And we'll consider them together here in just a moment as we work our way through. 
But in chapter 2, remember that Paul has argued against the idea that because God chose the Jews as His own people, because He has entrusted them with His written Word, that they are protected against the judgment of God merely by possessing that Word. He has given them the light, and therefore they have that light, they can perceive what is wrong in others, and that means that they are protected from the wrath of God. No, it does not, says Paul. Verses 17 to 24 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 25 to 28, Paul turns then to the Jewish dependence on circumcision. It was the sign of the covenant, but he says the sign of the covenant does not protect a Jew from God's wrath. In somewhat of a parallel sense, many today seek that same type of security from the sign of the new covenant baptism. And think that in that symbol, in that sign, that there is hope, that there's security. It marks us as God's people, and therefore we're safe in that. Paul's Jewish opponents saw circumcision as we illustrated it uh, last week. They saw circumcision like we might look at our U.S. citizenship. I'm not supposed to break the law, but if I do, I'm not kicked out of the country. I remain a U.S. citizen. It may not go well for me, depending on what law I've broken, but I've just broken a law. They're not going to revoke my citizenship. The Jews would have thought of it in very similar terms. We have circumcision. We have the sign of the covenant. We are God's people. We may sin. We may break His law from time to time, but we'll always remain His people. And perhaps there's someone who violates the covenant to such a length that they are rejected and come under the wrath and judgment of God. But for the Jews, they are God's people. They have this security. They have this privilege. They have this place. And Paul says, no. No. It's not like U.S. citizenship. It's much more like a wedding ring. That ring has a symbol a symbol of fidelity, of marriage and fidelity. But if one commits adultery, don't imagine that you can point to the fact that you own a ring. Your breaking of the covenant of marriage means that that ring is pretty useless. What it symbolizes is gone because of your sin. So Paul says to the Jews, that's how to think about it in a sense circumcision, possessing the Word of God. This does not secure us before God, uh, even though Israel was indeed the chosen people of God. So Paul really is inviting here, in a sense, in chapters 2 and 3, the Gentile readers to listen in to his discussion with his Jewish opponents who are, it is true, God's chosen people, but not secure before the bar of God, before His throne, His judgment seat. But Paul warns the Jews then that their religiously informed, ethnically privileged position will not protect them ultimately. They must not trust in such faulty notions. They must realize, as we all must understand, first of all in chapter 3, that every human being is thoroughly corrupted by sin. In verses 1 through 9, under this head, we note that the, even the Jews, not to mention the Gentiles, are under sin's curse. Now, this takes a lot for Paul to argue this point, to defend this point. Many of his readers, at least those who would have attended his synagogue lectures, many of them would reject this notion. 
But he stresses the point here, even the Jews, not to mention the Gentiles, are under sin's curse. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Think in chapter 2. What has he been saying? It's not having the word. It's not being circumcised that will bring God's pleasure upon you as you stand before judgment. And then the the question then was that what advantage is there at all? What's the privilege? And Paul's leading you in a sense to say, well, none. Of course not. If having the word doesn't do anything before God, if being circumcised didn't have anything to do before God, that is, you are part of the covenant people, but it it's not going to bring the pleasure of God, you're still under the wrath of God because of your sin, then what good is it? Paul, of course, is, he's almost like in a boxing match here and he keeps his opponent off balance. What good is it to be a Jew? What is the answer? Verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? That is the statements of God given in written text or what we would know as the Old Testament. This is no small matter. God entrusted His written revelation to the offspring of Abraham. The whole world was groping about in moral darkness. And God gave to Israel a powerful flashlight, so to speak, the truth of God's Word. That is huge. That is a distinct advantage to know what God believes. So while the Gentiles are appealing to their conscience, trying to figure out through trial and error that murder is bad, and adultery has destructive consequences, and dishonoring your parents is harmful, as they come to discern that through conscience and trial and error, Israel has the Word of God. There it is, written in stone, as it were, by the very finger of God. You will not commit murder. You will not commit adultery. You will honor your father and mother right there. That's an advantage. That's a grand privilege. Much in every way. They have the oracles of God. They have the Word of God. That is always an advantage. Now, behind all of this are opponents. And again, I picture them as probably largely opponents that are Jewish opponents who are in the synagogues through the ancient world where Paul has ministered now for a quarter century. And he knows what they have to say. He knows their objection. He's inviting us as Gentiles to listen in. As he says, verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does the faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Can we judge God unfaithful for giving to Israel a law she failed to keep? Now, when you first hear that, you say, well, that's a stupid thought. How could you blame God for giving Him a word someone doesn't keep? That doesn't make any sense, but wait a minute. If God gives His law to people He knows cannot keep it, is God unjust to punish them for failing to do so? Verse 4. By no means, says Paul. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Kind of a a figure of speech, a way of saying God will always remain faithful even when His people do not. So back to that question, is God unjust in giving His people a law they cannot keep? You go back in my world, four children living at home, 
I say to them on a summer day, Dad's going to go to work. I want you to mow the lawn before I get home at lunchtime. One other thing, I want you to scrape and paint the entire house before I get home at lunchtime. And if not, there's going to be some severe consequences. And one other point about my four children, they're seven, five, three, and two. They kind of just look up at me blinking and, go, and, and as I take off and expect to have the house painted and the yard mowed by these little kids when I get home by lunchtime. That's an unjust, unfaithful father. And we laugh, it's silly in one sense, but imagine that a father would come back and take it out on his children for not doing it. There's no way in the world that they can do that. Is that how we would blame God here? Giving to his people a law that he knows they won't keep. Maybe he's unjust in punishing them. It's far from a perfect illustration, but I if we can just get into it far enough to grasp the sense of it. Imagine that I take these four same little children and we go on a fishing trip out into the ocean and we go so far out that we lose sight of land. And we're out there fishing and the boat sinks. And I am caught in this sinking boat and cannot get loose and push my four children out into the water with no flotation device. It's just them and their swimming lessons. And the two-year-old's already taken on water and going down under. And as I am just about to sink into the ocean, kind of a gruesome illustration, isn't it? But don't take it too much to heart. Uh, but I say to them right as I go, swim to land. And it might be just as well if I say, I love you. But in this illustration, swim to land. They didn't even know where it is. It's so far away, no way, humanly speaking, is it even conceivable that they swim to land. But what else am I going to say? That's what has to happen. Just if we pick that piece of it out, as God gives His law, that's in a sense what it is. He's telling them to do something they can't do in their own flesh. But they've got to. There's no other answer but to pursue the perfection of the law of God. God is not partially holy. He's not partially righteous. And His call to us as His people and to the Jews as His chosen people is live sinlessly. Keep the law. Is God unjust in saying that? No. That's reality. That's what they must do. He is faithful to command His people to live righteously. He is faithful because that's the only way they can enter His presence in eternity in their own strength. Even though He knows they will never be able to swim to shore, so to speak, the law says swim to shore. In pointing them to righteousness in the law, He teaches them how desperately they need what? How desperately they need to learn how to swim? Not going to get them anywhere. He's teaching them how desperately they need to be rescued. That's their hope. That's our hope. It's not ultimately to obey every law of God perfectly. We can't do it. But He gives us the law in part that we might understand, I need a rescue boat here. I need a Savior outside of me because I can't swim to shore. I don't even know where shore is. 
What Paul's Jewish objector does not want to hear is that God is also faithful and just to punish Jews who break his law. But that's the point here of the quotation you find in verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. I think a better reading of this text, or translation of this text, would and prevail when you judge, rather than when you are judged, that God is judged, and it could be taken that way, that God is just, is the point. But I think here it's an active sense that you will prevail You will be proven righteous when you judge. When you judge whom? When you judge sinning Israel. There's an irony in this quotation as Nathan confronts David for his sin with Bathsheba and David writes Psalm 51, which we read earlier today. The irony is in this. Yes, God will be faithful. He'll be faithful to judge your sin. He will be proven right Nothing that He asks you to do will be wrong and His operation will always be faithful. He will not overlook your sin because you are a Jew for He is faithful. And He doesn't play favorites. Now at this point in the argument, Paul seems to subtly address the accusation that his teaching on salvation apart from works of the law means that Paul is encouraging people that they have a free ticket to sin. Live however you want to live. Salvation is by grace. Now, people that are leaning towards salvation is by obeying God. Now, there's an element in which they were chosen by God as His people. But they're also on some level saying that it is by obeying the law that I please God. To such people, hearing that salvation is by faith, apart from the works of the law, has led many to accuse Paul of saying, you can live however you want. You trust Christ as your Savior, you are forgiven your sin, and you are free to live in sin because you are forgiven. Paul is addressing that critique. If we're not saved by keeping the law, if we are saved by faith alone, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, then we are free to live however we choose. Paul doesn't really address this criticism with anything like a thorough argument here. He'll get back to it in chapters 5 through 7, but he hits it here briefly. Here's what people were saying about Paul's teaching, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way only. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then, how would God judge the world? There's a lot of confusion in these verses. But I think simply, if God gives His law, His people break it, and God's righteousness is thereby magnified, would God not work against His own glory if He punishes sin? It's a complicated argument, and we're not helped by not knowing the people that were making the argument. But at issue is this concern. Doesn't our privilege as Jews make it immoral for God to judge our sin? He says, I speak in a human way. I mean, it's like, forgive me for speaking such blasphemy. But I've got to address this issue by no means. How could God judge the world? What he means there is he is always and forever the righteous judge. If he judged his own people inappropriately, he would lose his right as a judge for all. But God is the judge and He always does what is right. And He is right 
to issue a law that people do break, and he is right to judge those who even bring glory to him by their disobedience. Are you sure, Paul, someone might say? Verse 7, are you sure about this? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If God gets glory in contrast to my sins, is it right for him to judge me? is basically a restatement of verse 5, and again, it's hard for us to grasp the full meaning. But I think we can get to it here just by a simple illustration. I have to say I don't watch them, but I'm kind of aware of these home improvement shows. Probably set my eyes on a couple here and there. They're kind of interesting, and, and I don't know, it seems like right now there's like, a, like couples, right? They're, they do these home improvements, and they just turn homes into amazing places. Let's take one of those couples. You fill in who it is. I don't know any of them, but you fill in who it is. And this couple goes into this home and they're doing all this magic. And they say, you know, we could probably do this for our children. So they have this kid, this young guy, he's just not getting very far in life, but they put him in this house and they say, here, this is yours. You got this house. Beautiful place. But this kid's a mess. He gets into drugs, he's running with the wrong people, and he destroys this house. It turns into a drug house, and it is in bad, bad shape. He even begins to take care of himself and his premises, and all is completely ugly. But his parents go in, they don't tell anybody who it is, and they film the place, and they do their magic again. And they are seen as, you know, they're on TV and everybody thinks they're just the most amazing people to have fixed this whole house up again. Their reputation and fame actually increases by their son's folly. They put him in another house and he does the same thing again. Completely trashes this thing. They bring the film crew in and they resurrect the house and they just more praise to them And somebody confronts this kid and says, what are you doing? He says, well, listen, every time I do this, my parents' ratings go up on their program. I mean, I I turn it into trash and they turn it into beauty and everybody thinks they're great. we got a good deal going here. What do you say to this young man? The fact that your evil and wickedness brings glory to your parents does not mean that what you're doing is right. Stop it. Let's talk. Let's get this figured out. In some sense, that might illustrate, Jews are saying, or some of his opponents are saying, well, if you're thinking this way, that salvation is purely by grace through faith in Christ, then anybody who's sinning is just bringing glory to God. So why would he intervene in that? This is ridiculous thinking, Paul says. Verse 8, why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Let's get this. If you're following what Paul is saying, if you're following the way of salvation that God has revealed, some people are going to have that objection. Salvation is free of works. It is by grace alone. Some people who come to terms with that are going to say, well, then I can live however I want and I can sin all that I want. By no means, says Paul, 
All he will say here is their condemnation is just. I'm not even going to say any more about it. That is a wicked argument. It's like telling this kid who's messing up and living a godless life and trashing everything around him that he should go on doing that because it brings glory to his parents. Not at all. Don't pin that on God. That's all ridiculous. What then, verse 9, are we Jews any better off? He kind of ties it up here, and I would put the paragraph break here at the end of verse 9 in some sense, but it just flows together. But we'll, we'll couple this with verses 1 through 8. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is where he's beginning now to tie it up. He's beginning to, to emphasize and summarize his point here. This is it. We're all under sin. We don't stand in the midst of a large group before God and get by with our sin. We don't get by with our sin because God's able to repair things. We stand as an individual before God and He is seeking perfection. Absolute holiness. And what He finds is utter sin. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. That's a frightening phrase. Gentiles, the focus of chapter 1, 18 and following. Chapter 2, 1 and following, the emphasis falls on the Jews, but they are all under sin. Here at long last is the hard, offensive truth about the human heart. By nature, we are all born under sin. What that means is that we violate God's law, we miss the mark of God's loving purposes for us by nature. Sin is not something merely that we do from time to time. And I am convinced that I probably am speaking directly to some here right now. You look at sin as something that you trip up and do once in a while and you want to not do that again. That's a wrong concept. I mean, it's true as far as it goes. You do trip up. But this is under sin. This means that sin pervades our very being. It is our natural bent. It is our heart. We violate God's law, missing the mark of God's loving purposes because that's who we are. Sin is not merely something we do from time to time. It is a condition into which we are born. It is, as Paul will describe it, a bondage. If you've not come to terms with the fact that you are born into that bondage, you're not yet tracking with the Bible's message. All are under sin. Those that are so easy to see, the Hitlers of this world, the Nazis of history, this wickedness that took place in this Polish city, not just that, but all. During that same world war that roiled Europe and displayed the depravity of man at Jebabni, another scenario was playing out in Japan, told in the book Shantung Compound, written by Langdon Gilkey, who was there. Gilkey's upbringing, he's a Yale University graduate. His father uh, was the dean of Rockefeller Chapel at the University of Chicago. If you put all of that together... You're talking about a young man who grew up in tremendous wealth and privilege. He also operated, knowing the era and the time, he operated in the midst of a liberal elite of his day that was a very gracious, self-righteous group 
They had their act together in every way in life. Gilkey was captured and imprisoned in a Japanese prison camp with individuals he had grown up with and with others who had the same type of privilege that he had. They were the people that cared for the poor. They were the people that did what was right. They were the people of high moral standing in the culture. And he said, we got into that camp and that's all I knew was this privilege. But we got into the camp and the food sources were very minimal. And the conditions were very tight. And he said, I saw people that I had believed had been taught civility and charity and graciousness and deference, that we were morally superior to all around us. Nothing like those ignorant, cruel poles at Jedvabne. But when food and space and medical treatment and freedoms were all taken away, he said, we became just like everybody else. Depravity ruled in that compound. As people fought and scrapped, protecting themselves in unloving ways with one another, all of the training and the moral privilege and standing went out the window. All are under sin. Circumstances sometimes hide this, but we are under sin. We are under its rule. It is like it is a master that directs our hearts. It shook his worldview to the core when he saw the entrenched depravity that came out of nowhere, it seemed. But he realized it came out of the heart. All. So even Jews are under sin's curse. Secondly, even the Old Testament, not to mention Paul's Gospel, reveals that all people are under sin's curse. What Paul will do now is to support this assertion with Old Testament text. All that he is saying is illumined by the era-shifting cross of Christ. All that he is saying reflects the new era of salvation in Jesus for Jews and Gentiles. But nothing that Paul is saying is unbiblical. All of it is rooted in the Old Testament Scriptures as well. And he evidences this now by putting together this string of proof. We will not take the time to look at each text in its context. That's a fascinating work in and of itself. But we will just look at the text that he cites. So knowing here, as you look in your text, probably the type uh, is different, the setting is different, or the, the uh, margins are different, indicating here that he's drawing texts from the Old Testament. When he says, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Here's my point, and here's what the, the Old Testament shows us. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So here Paul emphasizes the universality of depravity and then assembles passages that point to the wickedness of human speech. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, of, of poisonous snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. When the tongue gets opened and self is at the front and at the fight, this is what comes out. Godless, 
deceptive, wicked, harmful, bitter, cursing speech. He then looks to violence. Verse fourteen or verse fifteen. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I hardly need to tell you how countercultural and unnatural such thinking is. America has grown utterly allergic to the talk of sin. If allergic is anything close to a strong enough word. We just don't have time for sin anymore. Like a pastor in our previous town that I was meeting with one day, she said, I don't do sin. I don't do guilt. I think that speaks well for our culture. I don't do guilt. Our natural inclination is now to say that if you love me, you will accept me for who I am. If you love me, you will celebrate who I am. You will appreciate my significance and my worth. You will encourage me to think highly of myself. Only those who see the best in me truly love me. So how could it ever be good for you to make me feel badly about myself? Here's the truth. No one has ever loved you more. No one has ever loved you more perfectly than God loves you. And God says to you with perfect fidelity and every good desire, when he says this, you are a very great sinner. You don't understand. You don't seek me. You are not good. You are at the core of your being by nature under sin. You're morally broken. Given the circumstances, we are all capable then of any and every sin, all of us. We have propensities. And that's by the grace of God, by His common grace, all we're ever going to know. But given the circumstances, given the time, we are capable of any sin, each one of us, and we have to know that about ourselves. Called to fear God and keep His commandments, we fail to do so over and over again as we love not Him, but ourselves. And we trust not His law, but our own passions and ideas. We do not bend ourselves to His purposes, but to our own. What Paul says next even further clouds the picture. But we look, if we, if we follow what he's saying, every human being is thoroughly corrupted by sin. There might be a desire to do something about it. And that desire is pervasive in human history. That is what we call religion. A desire to do something about the broken relationship that we have with God. But the bad news, in a sense, continues here when Paul says no human being can earn a right standing with God. No human being can earn a right standing with God. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Those who are under the law, referenced specifically here to the Jews, it's also a reference applicable to Gentiles who did not possess the law but were still responsible to follow what it revealed. 
In light of the string of quotations, the law here probably is all of written revelation. Both Jews and Gentiles are under the law, but in different ways. Let's take two drivers. They're out on a rural, rural road somewhere, a highway through, let's say, Montana. And they stop for gas and they enter back on the road having no idea what the speed limit is. One woman in her car has a GPS. The GPS tells her it's 55 miles an hour here. And this guy in his car has no GPS, no clue, and he takes off and is going 90 miles an hour. She sees what her GPS says, and she goes 75 miles an hour. Now, one has the truth and the knowledge. The other does not. But as this guy's driving, he's kind of thinking, I think I'm going way over the speed limit, but I don't know what it is, and I'm just not going to worry about it. She looks at the GPS and says, I know exactly what the speed limit is, but I'm not going to worry about it. And I'll worry about a little more than him. That guy just passed me. He's going to be in trouble before I am. Both of them are breaking the law. One by violating his conscience. One by rejecting the message that's right there clearly on her dash that it's 55 miles an hour here. Both Jews and Gentiles are under the law. The Jews know precisely what it is and violate it. The Gentiles have a conscience and they have trial and error and they violate that. Both are breaking the law. We are by nature unable to obey God's laws so as to satisfy His perfect standard of holiness. Condemned as lawbreakers by nature, we stand before the bar of God where He is judge and jury and we stand silenced. Verse 20 or verse 19 that every mouth may be stopped. For, and here's the reason, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is, God's revealed Word shows us right and wrong, but it cannot make us obey what is right. It shows us how God has created the moral universe. It shows us how to synchronize our lives to that law of God. But what does this law's influence do? It shows us that through the law, we are sinners. We become aware of it indeed through the law. The law merely exposes our rebellion because our heart naturally rebels against it. So I may have the GPS of God's Word, possess it and break it, or I may have conscience that tells me essentially what that GPS is saying and break it. It doesn't matter. All fall short. And when we get the law, When that law is made clear, it simply shows us our sin. It shows us that we fall short of the glory of God. Now, just a few moments. There's a couple of truths here that are fundamental to this passage and to our knowledge of ourselves and our God. The first is this. Let's take it to heart. You're not going to hear it anywhere in the media this week. No unsaved friend will say this to you, but here it is. Truth one. Morally speaking... We are thoroughly corrupted by sin and totally depraved. No one is righteous in themselves. No one. Why did half of the citizens of Jedvabne kill off the other half in July of 1941? There's one answer the historians haven't offered. It is this simply because they could. That's it. That's all that was needed. Because they could. The restraints of law removed. 
the heart allowed to well up with its natural interests. And in that setting, under those circumstances, they did because they could. It's only the circumstances of life that in the grace of God keeps us from all sorts of messes, all sorts of rebellion. When murder is in the heart, all it needs is an opportunity to express itself. Secondly, religiously speaking, so morally speaking, we are thoroughly corrupted by sin. Religiously speaking, we are incapable of freeing ourselves from sin or pleasing God by our efforts. The sin that we come to acknowledge, don't think what I can do now is try harder. There's a strong temptation to rely on religious education, to rely on religious privilege, to think that because we can rightly assess the moral failings of the world, or we can read our Bibles and know God's will, that we thereby gain advantage before God. No. The first truth, offends the way that we naturally want to see ourselves as good people. The second truth offends the way we naturally want to see ourselves in comparison with others. I'm better than them because of my religious duties, because of the things that I do to please God in my own strength. What we find in Romans 3 is a straight-up revelation of how God sees us. No one is righteous. Not one. By the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. Before God's judgment bar, there is here utter silence. The accusation falls and there is no response. Now there's some here, I want to really stress this for just a moment, but I want you to know that this is all good news. This is all good news. Now, it's only part of the good news. But for those who look at this and say, this is is so negative. How could you talk about people in this way? I I see so much good in this world. This is really good news. That's where Paul is starting. Chapter 1, we see his thesis stated here that I am going to describe to you the good news. But the good news is not possible to perceive and grasp until we recognize the bad news. When we don't get the bad news of who we truly are, we come up with answers that fall short. It would be like going into a doctor and hearing bad news. You have the flu. Take these medications. Hang in there. It'll all pass. When in fact, you have terminal cancer. Churches all over this country and world spend much effort to tell people that they have the flu. God's Word says it straight up. You're dying. You are dead in transgressions and sins. You are by nature separated from God and nothing you can do in your own strength will solve that. But the good news comes when there is a right diagnosis. And so the doctor says, I'm sorry to tell you this. You have cancer, and if it's not treated, you're going to die. But there's a treatment. Here it is. And I believe that we can put you back onto health and life if you follow this treatment. It's not a treatment. The analogy breaks down as to what Paul will say. But what he's getting straight here is the diagnosis. 
by obedience to God, all we learn is how far short we fall. But there is a righteousness. Here it is, verse 21. A righteousness of God. It's been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, what? Believe. That's the good news, is that the salvation has been won for us. For those who know Christ as Savior, this is then to be a way of life. It is the way of life of which we've been singing here this morning. And what we've been meditating on, to know that sin remains a motivation. To know that we too have been silenced before the bar of God. To know that sin motivates us to silence the Spirit's presence in our life. To live a life of repentance. To live a life of humility. Knowing that we've been rescued from this destruction. To live with eternal gratitude to the Savior who rescues us from our sin and breaks its stranglehold upon us. This truth that God has revealed, this bad news, leads to the good news of a righteousness that doesn't come from me, but comes from outside of me and makes me for the rest of forever a person of gratitude, of praise and thanksgiving. I've been picked out of the sea. I was dead. But he rescued me. Getting to see all of this as Paul lays it out and comes to this glorious note in verses 21 and following. So we're like these little children struggling in the sea. But there is then eternal gratitude when we are rescued. Good news is heightened by the full perception of who we are in our own nature and how we come to receive the gift of a new nature, a new standing, a new identity, a new life in spiritual union with Jesus Christ. It's not about who you are. It's about who He is. And this is the good news.